welcome to Medical Minefield, the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Eve Simmons. And I'm Ethan Ennels. And we're health journalists, which means we spend our lives asking tough questions to top experts so you don't have to. This week, we're asking why health chiefs won't approve the COVID drug that has been proven to save the most vulnerable. As always, we'd love to hear from you. If you have a suggestion for Medical Minefield or a question, please do tweet us at MedMinefield. Now we're going through one of those periods, Ethan, where everyone's getting COVID. I don't think that there's a person that I know who hasn't had it in the last couple of weeks. Have you? Well, apart from me. I haven't either. <laughs> but I have had a really bad cold. Actually, we both had a I've, bad cold. The colds were pretty bad. I yeah. feel COVID's the next step. Mm, let's not count our chickens. But obviously for most of us now, we're all triply vaccinated. You get COVID and it's not really much of a big deal. You get on with your days. In fact, I'm speaking to friends this week who said that they even went into their office. Whether that's responsible <gasps> or not is another. But I think it's kind of part and parcel of life now, right? Mm. But I was surprised to learn from you and your reports this week that that there is quite a significant number of people who are still shielding even now. Yes, and I think it's something we spoke about on this podcast before. There are, by some estimates, about 500,000 people in the UK who have immune-suppressing diseases. That includes organ transplants, blood cancer, which means that they, A, haven't responded to the vaccines meaning they don't have any protection against COVID, and B, are even more vulnerable to COVID in the first place because they don't have a very well-working immune system. So despite the fact that these people have had between five and six jabs now, many of them are still shielding because their doctors have told them it's still not safe for them to go out. And it's very easy to forget about these people because, like you say, we're all living our kind of normal Mm. lives now. But For some of us, that's not the case. They're still kind of where you and I were in April 2020, which is quite a shocking thought. But it's not all bad news, is it? Because there is a drug that can help them. And that's what we're here to talk about today. Yes. And it's a drug which is also made by AstraZeneca, who made the COVID vaccines. It's a British drug. It's been shown in studies to reduce the risk of catching COVID by 90%. And if you were to get COVID while on this drug called Evusheld, your risk of dying is reduced by more than 60%. Now, for patients who haven't mounted an immune response due to the fact that vaccines don't work, something like this could be an absolute game changer and could allow them to return to normal life. And that's why this week the Mail on Sunday is backing the campaign of charities who are calling for Evershield to be approved by NICE and made available to all of this group of patients. But it's quite shocking that it hasn't that hasn't happened already. No, there's been so much back and forth. And the government has been saying since it was first approved by regulators in March earlier this year that there wasn't enough evidence to show it worked against the Omicron variant, which is, as we all know, the variant which now affects us all and is everywhere. And there's many different types of Omicron variant now, but they all come from the same lineage. And the government has been saying we don't know whether this drug works against Omicron. Except that's not quite true because we've now had multiple lab studies where they've tested the virus in cells. And we've also had loads of real-world data because there are 32 countries now which have used Evusheld since early this year. The US, Israel, France all started in December last year. And we know from those countries that this drug works really well still against Omicron. It seems a bit fishy. Is there something else going on? Is there another reason? Well, it's hard to say. I think there was a strategy very early on in COVID. We saw this with the vaccines where 
we didn't wait for concrete evidence before we bought drugs mm. and rolled them out. We thought, let's just try everything and see what sticks. It's better to spend too much money and the drug maybe not live up to its hopes than not buy the drug and people die as a result. Mm. But now that we're in the kind of other side of COVID, and as we all know, uh, the government is in a kind of financial tight spot, mm. I think there is not necessarily a reluctance to spend money, but more a reluctance to buy stuff without clear clinical proof. But there is, there's a range of experts who are saying that there is enough proof. Well, and these experts are saying the government are constantly moving the goalposts as well, because what the government is saying they want before they roll out EV Shield are clinical trials. There's a difference between a clinical trial and an observational study, which is what we've seen from other countries. An observational study is where we look at a group of patients in the real world. A clinical trial is very controlled. You have a group of patients who get the drug and those who don't, and they don't know who's on which side. And it's a very controlled environment, which takes a long time to do. And you have to have loads of scientists involved and researchers observing the patients at all time. And the government say they want one of those. They don't want an observational study. But the problem is, by the time you do a clinical trial, you get results reviewed, and you publish the paper in a respected mm. medical journal, this virus is mutated. There's going to be another variant. That... And changed yeah. again. Mm -hmm. So... In the same way that with COVID, we weren't quite sure whether it was going to work against Omicron when we did the winter boosters last year. Mm. So we doubled up the dose. Evisheld has been done in the same way in the States. They've doubled the dose of Evisheld as a precaution and you're using it like that. But the government won't accept that. The government says they want a clinical trial to show it's going to work. But the problem is they're never going to get that. Well, I think that first we should speak to somebody who has been personally affected by this. On the line now is Imogen Dempsey, who has um, been shielding since the very beginning of the pandemic and continues to do so because she suffers an autoimmune disease, which means that she doesn't mount any antibodies in response to the vaccine. Imogen, thank you so much for finding the time to talk to us this afternoon. Obviously, your situation is very different from a lot of people who are kind of living their life post-pandemic, as it were. Can you explain to us a little bit about what life looks like for you right now? Well, firstly, I'd start by saying I'm not sure we're post-pandemic when 400 COVID deaths were reported last week, up from 280 the week before. We are still seeing a lot of COVID within communities and we are still seeing a lot of people dying from it. We may be learning to live with the virus, as they say. However, a lot of people unfortunately aren't. What does life look like for me now? Well, I'm not able to safely return to commuting and to the office. I've not had a response to the COVID vaccination. I've got an autoimmune problem. I'm one of about half a million people across the UK who need a vaccine equivalent drug called Evershield, which was rolled out by pretty much every other G7 country apart from the UK. And unfortunately, the government has decided not to fund it. Yesterday, it was announced it would be available privately. But that then compounds the inequality that clinically extremely vulnerable, clinically vulnerable immunosuppressed people have experienced throughout the duration of the pandemic. Free testing's been removed, you know, masks in healthcare were removed, making it really difficult for us to even safely access healthcare. The fact that Evershield is being held to a higher standard of clinical testing than the vaccines were, and then that it's not being provided on the NHS, compounds the inequality being experienced by people who may have 
a lot of health conditions. You say you're you're not going to work at the moment, Imogen. Are you able to kind of go out of the house at all in terms of going out with friends, going to you know the cinema, going out for dinner, that kind of thing? All the things that that a lot of people are sort of started doing again and were very pleased to do. Are those types of things that you have to kind of be careful about. So I've had meals outside at pubs. I'm lucky to live quite rurally, and lots of pubs have like pub gardens and stuff and I I do feel that outdoor eating is a lot safer and I tend to get friends to meet outside because you know well ventilated outside space is obviously a a lot safer in terms of how much socializing I do indoors almost none these days and I haven't eaten inside in a restaurant since right at the end of February 2020. Gosh, must be so frustrating for you, given that I'm sure all your friends and other people you know are kind of getting back to normal, living their life like they were before. And for you, it's like life's completely changed. It has. And I feel like my life is so narrow now compared to how it was. I I miss really basic things that I took for granted before the pandemic. I miss being able to take my daughter swimming, which she loves. There are things that you can do in a high grade mask indoors like choose some new library books or whatever go to your hospital appointment things like that there are some things that you can do reasonably safely in a high-grade mask going swimming is not one of them because obviously that's both indoors where you're sharing air with potentially infected people that is not safe for me to be doing at the moment and is a source of huge pain really because you know she's she's a very keen swimmer and it's something we used to do regularly on a weekend together it's such a small, small thing to be able to take your child swimming. Uh, of course. And what about the, the kind of anxiety that comes with it? I mean, you must, uh, I can't imagine, you, you must be kind of worried every time somebody comes near the house or, or, you know, when your daughter comes home from school, for instance, of what might happen. Well, my daughter's still wearing a high-grade mask to school to try and ensure that she doesn't pick up COVID at school and bring it home. I have a sign up on the front door pointing out I'm clinically extremely vulnerable. I'm still having all my groceries delivered with the supermarket that I use. They let you add a delivery instructions note. So mine says, can the groceries please be placed by the front door and the driver step well back because I've had no response to the vaccine and I'm still vulnerable. And I have to say, all credit to them, they, they have been completely brilliant on that side of things. They're very, very good. Imogen, what will happen now that Evie Sheld will possibly be made available privately? Well, we know it's intended to be made privately. So will you be going out to get it? And, and how will that change your life? I've got kind of mixed feelings on that, really. I'm very lucky in that, at the moment, would be able to pay to have it done privately. But my worry is that it should be accessible to all of the people that need it to all of the people that are on transplant drugs, cancer drugs, whatever. It's a relatively small number. There's 500,000 of us or thereabouts. I think it's really unfair that it's not made available to everybody that needs it. It's just really not on. That's, that, that, that's not the principle on which the NHS National Health Service was founded. Well, Imogen, best of luck to you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you very much. Gosh, that really brings it home, doesn't it? It seems crazy that there's people who are still restricted in their life in that way. 
And interestingly, there was a development this week. Eva Shield's now available to patients if you can shell out £1,000 for it. Yeah, this kind of came out of nowhere. Wednesday evening, I got uh, a tip-off from a patient group I've been speaking to, been pushing a shelled from blood cancer patients who forwarded me on an email they'd received from AstraZeneca. And AstraZeneca had got in touch with all the immunocompromised people that they knew of to say that they should go to their NHS doctor and get a prescription for Evisheld and then go to a private clinic and pay for it because that's the only way that they're going to be able to access it. So as of this last week, you can access Evisheld in the UK, but you'll have to pay upwards of a grand for it. You have to get a dose every six months and the price will go up to £1,600 after the winter. And what are patients saying about that? Are they going to go out and buy it? I think there's a mixture of things. I think some people are are pretty overjoyed because they can finally access the drug. I mean, I've spoken to loads of people in the past who said that they would pay anything to get their freedom back and I can sympathise with that. Mm. I wouldn't really be able to put a price on it. But at the same time, there are lots of people who, who literally can't afford it. Mm. Those who... I mean, £1,600 is not a drop in the And these, a lot of these people haven't been able to work for the last two and a half years mm. because they haven't been able to leave the house. So their income is really low as it is. We're in a cost-living crisis. It's a large amount of money to shell out in the first place. But the fact that these people are being asked to shell out for a life-saving drug because the government won't fund it goes against everything we know in the NHS, doesn't it? I mean... You, well, I you, guess you could say they're not being asked to shell out for it. Well, they're they, saying if they, if they want, want to protect it, them. then they have to. Sure. I mean, maybe that's the case with, I don't know, hay fever medicine or something, if you prefer not to get an itch in your eye. But if it's a drug which could save your life... I personally think that's pretty scandalous that the NHS isn't funding it. I know it's it's a view shared by many. I mean, there was a, there was a real outpouring of anger about it this week from patient groups and charities who just thought it was completely unacceptable, and it was the government basically removing itself from responsibility. You know, rather than deciding whether it was worth it or not to fund this drug, they've just told people to go out and fund it themselves. Well, we're going to speak to someone else who shares that view. Yes, and on the line now we have Lord Andrew Lansley, the former Conservative Health Secretary. Hi, Ethan. Yes, very glad to have the opportunity to talk to you about Evershield. It's something I feel very strongly about, and we've been much involved in trying to speak to ministers and encourage the NHS to make it available for the severely immunocompromised patients over what's now nine or ten months. So when did you first become aware of this issue and, and what led to that? Well, I, f- I first became aware early in 2022. And I think principally from my continuing contacts with AstraZeneca, who were uh, headquarters was in my constituency when I was a member of parliament. I've also been part of the all-party parliamentary group on vulnerable patients, where we've been trying to encourage the NHS and the government to take particular account of all those people who are the most vulnerable in the course of the pandemic. And what we became aware of is that in the earlier part of 2022, everybody was starting to talk about a return to normality and opportunities for people to come out and about. And it became to us immediately obvious that there was a very serious problem for those who aren't responding to vaccination in the way that the great majority of us are happily able to. But for them, it wasn't a return to normality and what would be available for them. And it was earlier this year, of course, that some of the really positive data started to come through from the use of Evisheld 
Uh, and we started talking to ministers about making it available through the NHS uh, back in the springtime. Do they seem positive about it back then? Variable. From my point of view, talking to ministers, uh, they were positive. They were hopeful. And I think we were always quite realistic about the fact that it couldn't just be you know, made available overnight, uh, that there needs to be preparatory work done. It has become disappointing, progressively more disappointing, as ministers in the conversations that I've had with senior officials and ministers, they have, in my view, been overcautious in trying to look for a degree of evidence of effectiveness, which is above and beyond what has been required of many other treatments during the course of the pandemic, uh, or indeed uh, what have been asked of some of the vaccinations that were rolled out at an earlier stage. What changed then? It is clearly a question of what the balance of opinion was amongst the expert panels that ministers set up. But I think from my point of view, you know, it's very difficult for lay people, including politicians, to interject themselves between competing sets of scientists. But what we need to do is to say very simply, well, if AstraZeneca have supply available, if they are willing to enter into, as they've demonstrated just in the last I think 24 hours, they've demonstrated that they are willing to make it available in the United Kingdom, albeit, as it were, private prescriptions. But they they are willing to back up the NHS and make supply available. And it is very perplexing to many of us across both houses in Parliament that there can be over 30 countries around the world that have contracted for the supply of Evyshell to look after their severely immunocompromised patients. And of course, we're looking at now coming back into winter, we're looking at rising levels of COVID and indeed rising hospitalisation levels. And I think if you can't benefit from vaccination, then you really have to be given alternative opportunities for reassurance and protection. There are some growing concerns, though, about the effectiveness of the drug against newer variants. What's your take on that? Uh, I mean, I haven't seen them come back and say that it isn't effective. Because if if it was not effective against those variants, then there would be a change in the authorization from the UK Medicines Agency. But that hasn't happened. It, you know, it continues to benefit from an emergency authorization. And we haven't seen any shift, frankly, in France and America and so on, where who have been the leaders in the rollout of Evusheld in their countries. We haven't seen them finding that the relative effectiveness of Evysheld has been so dramatically different in relation to the latest variants that they've withdrawn it. They're continuing with it and they continue to think that it's having substantial effectiveness against those variants as well. Some experts have claimed that this is perhaps a cost issue. Do you have any insights on that? Do you think there's any truth in that? Well, that's not how government express it. I mean, there are two things that I worry about. One is that We've moved beyond a pandemic phase where it was a case of we'll do whatever it takes and we'll pay whatever it requires. And indeed, there were many billions spent. Uh, And we have moved into a a broader fiscal environment, which is making everybody in government, I think, very nervous. So I don't entirely discount that possibility. But also what I think has been also present and has been, I think, unreasonable is that there has been some hesitancy in government about some of the treatments that they paid for in the past, particularly uh, some monoclonal antibody treatments. And and obviously, Evusheld is based on that remarkable technology. But they have been reticent about some of those, and there have been some which they 
say were not really effective and they paid for and they weren't sufficiently effective in the past. But those are frankly completely different treatments. And you know, you just don't, in my view, take a view against a particular technology because different technologies work to different degrees of effectiveness in different circumstances with different requirements. And they should just look at every shell properly in its own terms and look at some of the real world evidence out there, which has been building up. And the real world evidence is accumulating that every shell is making a positive difference to this very vulnerable community. This week, we saw quite a kind of shocking situation where AstraZeneca said that they would make the drug privately available for patients. Patients will be expected to pay upwards of £1,000 per dose. I can't really remember anything like this on the health service before. I mean, your time in government, your time in the health department, have have you seen anything like this before where patients have been asked to shell out for potentially life-saving treatments? Well, of course, patients aren't being asked to shell out by the NHS. Uh, Unfortunately, I have seen before there have been circumstances where treatments have not been authorised by the NHS or not recommended by NICE. Well, we haven't reached the point where NICE is making any recommendation on every shelf and that if they go through their processes of the technology assessment, will probably be into the late spring of next year. And I think that's not good enough. Time is too short. But I do think it is a very unhappy situation if some of the most vulnerable patients have the resources and can buy this additional protection and others cannot. That's a very unhappy situation to get to. I think we should be in a position where at the very least, in the run-up to this winter and the risks that the most immune-compromised patients are running, that we have at the very least the most at risk, and you know there may be up to half a million who would benefit, but actually there's probably, as we've seen in France, for example, somewhere between 50 and 150,000 patients who probably are the most um, immune-compromised, that those are enrolled into a study and the supply is made available. And actually, at the end of the winter, then, of course, we'll have a great deal of real world evidence in our own system of whether this has made a difference. Andrew, I think that it's it's true that there's an appetite to obviously get back to normal. People are very keen to put COVID behind them. And this is a, you know, this issue affects a relatively small number of people. I mean, albeit significant. To what extent do you think that the kind of reluctance to take risks for this group of patients is because it's it's all too easy to dismiss them? You know, there's not huge amounts of them. They're quite small in numbers. And, you know, nobody really wants to think about sick people. Well, the first thing I'd say is it's the job of parliamentarians. And there's been a significant number of members of parliament and members of the House of Lords who have said that we're not going to ignore the needs of these patients. We are going to make sure that they are right up in the focus of policymakers. And there's a whole string of questions. And indeed, in the House of Commons, just three weeks ago, a debate for this purpose. So that's really important. But I think even from ministers' point of view, I think they completely understand that, that they have responsibilities towards patients. You don't look after the great majority of patients and ignore the small numbers. I mean, you know, I was responsible for the health service and the amount of resources that are made available in relation to patients who are in relatively rare disease categories and and who require specialised services is a very big part of what the NHS has to do. I think if I remember correctly, it was something like about 15% of the total budget was devoted to specialised services. So almost by definition, that's for relatively small numbers of patients, but who have relatively complex and difficult conditions to treat. 
where the pandemic is concerned and COVID is concerned, we have a particular number of patients who do need our help. And I don't think anybody who is getting the benefit of vaccination and is leading a more normal life and is traveling about and doing their work and so on would be indifferent to the circumstances where people have been through two long lockdowns and then they are continuing to feel that they are locked down, even if the law doesn't require it of them. They feel locked down because and often are literally locked in, just simply because they can't run the risks when COVID, of course, is circulating to a much greater extent. Mm. So just to kind of round it all up then, what do you think the government should do now? I mean, what's the kind of next step they should take if they want to make this right? I think the practical thing to do now is um, they have sufficient information in the system to be able to identify those who are most severely immune compromised, who have effectively no ability to create antibodies in response to vaccination. And they should supply every shelf to those patients before the winter sets in and the risks continue to rise. Lord Lansley, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Ethan. Call me cynical, but I do feel that we've been here before with this group of patients in that there seems to be a reluctance to invest in them and to really show kind of putting your neck on the line to make sure that the most vulnerable are okay. We, you know, the Mail on Sunday ran several reports on the absolute shocking scandal that was the mess ups of the third jabs. Immunocompromised people had to have three primary doses instead of two because three worked better than two for most of them but obviously not all and uh, we uncovered that there were lots of people who were going to their GP to say I'm due to have a third primary dose and the GPs were saying we have no idea what you're talking about because the NHS hadn't got their ducks in a row basically and sorted it out properly and it took months of our campaigning and campaigning of other patient groups to get the government to actually do something about it and make the process simpler and I can't help but feel that the same sort of thing is just happening again. Yeah, and I remember when you wrote those brilliant stories and everyone was looking at it kind of confused and saying, well, what are you guys talking about? I don't know anything about this. We were the only outlet talking about it. Only people who cared, despite its hundreds of thousands of Britons living in this awful situation which you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. Mm. But no one wanted to talk about it. And I think we did a good job of it then. And I think that's why it's important to keep going on this topic now, because, you know, someone needs to speak up for these people if if everyone's going to just ignore them and pretend they're not there anymore. I guess it's not exactly a vote winner, is it? Speaking up for a minority of people who probably aren't speaking very loudly themselves because they're, they've got bigger fish to fry and, and their priorities aren't. I do think there is something as well to the idea that the government so badly wants just to put COVID behind it. Mm. There are other issues now. There's, you know, Ukraine and the cost of living crisis and whoever, no will be prime our, minister. whoever will be our prime minister by the time this airs. So it's easy to imagine why they wouldn't want to shell out for this because, you know, let's not sugarcoat it. It's not cheap. If you wanted to offer every single one of the 500,000 a dose of this, it would cost upwards of 400 million. It's not mm. cheap. Mm. But experts would say to you, that's far cheaper than those people ending up in ICU. Well, exactly. Do we know what the impact of this is on hospital admissions? 
Yeah, and as we spoke in uh, this podcast a few weeks ago, the NHS is under incredible pressure already. We know that there's critical incidents being reported all across the country, basically hospitals saying they can't meet the demand of patients coming in. And we haven't got to the winter flu season yet. That's when things get bad. That's when hospital beds are taken up by respiratory viruses like colds and flus and COVID, of course. And we have a group of patients here who are so likely to get COVID and then end up in hospital. It would be mad not to do something about it before they ended up there, because if they end up in beds, then someone's hip replacement will have to be cancelled or someone's cancer scan will have to be postponed to make room for them. Mm. This isn't an issue which just affects 500,000 people. It affects millions of us. It affects one in seven of us who are waiting for an NHS appointment. If you want your NHS appointment to come sooner, you don't want more COVID patients coming to hospital. Well, hopefully the next time that listeners are hearing this podcast, we would have had a victory. And a new prime minister. And a new prime minister. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. You can get all the latest health news in this weekend's The Mail on Sunday, which you can consume in paper format or via the Mail app or by visiting mailplus.co.uk. We'll be back with another topic on Medical Minefield next week. See you then. Goodbye.